you have your Bibles, like I said, Matthew chapter 9, if you would stand with us as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight, as we consider uh, the idea of evangelism, and I want to attack it from maybe a little bit of a different angle. So, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, let's listen to the word of God. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, may God bless the reading of his word and bind it to our hearts. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we love you and we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it communicates clearly to us your intention to restore the relationship you have with humanity. And so in the moments that we have together, I ask that you would watch over the preaching and teaching of your word. I ask that you give me clarity of mind. I ask that you would recall to my heart and mind what I've studied, and that I would be faithful to teach your word accurately and plainly. And then, Lord, for those who hear the word, I pray that their hearts would be tender, that they would have ears to hear, and that they would respond in the appropriate manner to how you're convicting and your spirit is moving in this place. And we'll be careful to praise you and thank you for everything that you do and everything that will be done as a result of our time together this evening. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, having a proper perspective on life is very essential to who we are and making sure that we understand different things is in the right way is very, very important. Um, for those of you who maybe don't know me that well, I'm not a big math fan. I'm not a, a mathematologist. I'm not able to, to do a lot with numbers. Uh, I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and from there we can go on to some more basic things. Um, but one of the things that we grew up in life being taught is that algebra somehow, some way, is necessary uh, for life, for our existence, and for our ability to uh, be able to be successful human beings. And I just never bought that. I mean, I'm still on the outside of buying that. Now, I looked up why you need algebra, and I looked up ten, it, this article online, 10 reasons why I need algebra. And literally out of the list of 10, I found one that was semi-helpful. It said that algebra helps you to think logically, which I think is an important skill set to have. The other nine were of no consequence to me because they're all related to doing more math. And I'm like, these people don't even get me. And they don't even understand what I'm trying to do. But having the right perspective or seeing things the right way, seeing things clearly, seeing things for what they are. You know, sometimes we jump to judgments about people, although we don't know them completely. That's why I love college. You spend all of four years in high school and, and people have a perception of you. And then you go to college, which is like 80 times bigger than your high school, and just get to hit the reset button. Here's 20,000 people who have no idea who I am. They have no preconceived notion of who I am. 
and now I get to, to maybe reset and, and live life a little bit differently. But, you know, we're quick to, to make judgments and presume things about people and see them differently or not see them rightly. And so I thought that that might help us segue into our conversation on evangelism tonight because of this particular reason. I think that we all know in this room who are Christ followers know that we need to share the gospel. I don't think anybody who walks through our back doors tonight that would say, I follow Christ, would argue with the fact that they have a need to share Christ. I don't think anyone would. But I think that our motivation and the way that we see people, if it's done properly, will help us inevitably to share Christ. So from our passage, I think we see three specific things about evangelism that will help us in our walk and in our talk and in the way we're motivated to share Christ. That maybe, just maybe, might shift our perspective into how we even think and understand evangelism in general. So the first thing that we see from this particular text is that we need to see people like Christ. Or we need to see people like Christ sees people. Look at verse number 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Here in these first two verses, Matthew cues us in that Jesus is in the throes of his earthly ministry, and he's walking from town to town, from city to city, and he's doing miraculous things. He's teaching in the synagogues, He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, from an outsider's perspective, we might say, wow, that's really cool. Here's somebody who understands what humanity needs or lacks, and he's pressing into that. But none of those things touch the humanity of Christ like verse 36. In verse 36, we read that When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. So Jesus sees these people, these multitudes, for what they are. And Jesus sees you for what you are. And he has compassion towards you. Now you might say, well, compassion is nice. What is compassion could be just being nice to people. He's like, well, maybe they need some more food or maybe they need some more money. This is a deeper compassion than just being kind to somebody who's struggling. Uh, The idea here is a deep-seated emotion. It's a deep or great affection for someone. It's hopefully what you experience when you get married. There's a deep-seated affection. It's more than just, I like them and I like being around them. It goes deeper than that. And Jesus is moved in a deeper, even deeper love and compassion for these uh, scattered multitudes. He looks at them and he can't help but hurt for them. Now you say, why does Jesus hurt for them? Well, look at verse 36 again. He says, because they were weary and scattered. Some of your translations might read that they were uh, cast down and, and they were beaten up. These people are, can we say hopeless? 
they lived inside of a situation where the religion that they had known had bound them to feeling hopeless. And Jesus looks at them and sees them differently. Jesus looks at them and has a different perspective on who they are. Because when Christ looks at someone, he does not see them the way that the religious Pharisees saw them, or the Sadducees, or the other religious leaders of the day saw them. They saw them as rule breakers, as people who couldn't keep the law, as people who fell short all the time. Jesus sees these multitudes as people who are hopeless, that need something better than what they have. And he was moved with compassion. He's moved in a deep way for them. When you're out and about in the city, how do you interact with the people around you? Now we're tempted, right, to be ill-tempered, to not be patient. I guess technically that would be impatient. We're tempted to be impatient. It's okay, you can laugh at me not knowing words. We're tempted to get angry when things don't go our way. And so I want to ask you, when you see the people around you in the city, when the next couple of weeks, and unfortunately, school starts back up, and you walk into a classroom, how do you see the people around you? Are they people that are just there to serve you? You know, I, you view your coffee barista as the, someone, the, the person who gets me my caffeine, who gets me what I want, and when they don't do it quick enough or the way that I want, I get frustrated and upset. How do you see the people around you? With what lenses? We talk a lot of times about worldview lenses. How do you see people? You know, I have glasses. If I take these off, I can see probably these first two rows pretty clearly. Then it gets past uh, the first two rows, and it's going to go bad for me. Especially if you want me to hit something. I don't know why you would from up here, but in case you wanted me to throw a ball and hit somebody, I could probably do it these first two rows. Everybody's like, well, I'll move to the back. Um, but when these lenses are on, I see things rightly. I think a lot of Christians, the reason why we're not doing evangelism is not because we don't care about people, although it probably is. And it's not because we don't know that we need to. It's because we refuse to look at humanity the way that God looks at humanity. We refuse to look at people the way that Jesus looks at people. We refuse to look at somebody sitting next to us or across the room from us as someone who's made in the image of God. And unless they come into a relationship with God, they will spend eternity separated from that God. We don't see people that way. We see them how we want to see them. They're the people who need to get this from me or do this from me or help me in this way. I don't think we are afraid to do evangelism a lot of the times. I think it's just because we don't see people the right way. And Jesus understands this. You see, at the end of Matthew, we read last night, or last night, we read last week, the Great Commission. And, and we see that commission take place. But in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, Jesus is going to cut the disciples loose to go do ministry. Before he dies. But Jesus understands this. He can't set his disciples loose to do ministry unless they see people the way that he sees people. 
And Matthew catches this. So what instruction does Matthew record that Jesus gives them? Well, two things from the next two verses, which leads us into the second point. You have to see people like Jesus sees people, but you also have to see the need. Here's the bottom line. I think we live unaware of this idea or this particular line. Then he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, we've heard this verse hundreds of times. If you grew up in church, it's like Sunday night when I preach. Nothing more exciting than getting up and preaching a passage that everybody in the room that's been a Christian for probably five years has heard a hundred times. And we get to this verse and we've heard this verse. If we've grown up in church, if you did the whole Awana thing, you know these verses. But yet we get to them and they don't seem to pierce us. They don't seem to hit us where we live. See, here's the danger of the Christian life. You can become numb to the word of God because it's become routine. Because you don't go into it expecting fresh things. You don't go into it expect, expecting God to move. And here he says, the harvest is plentiful. Or he says, the harvest is is truly plentiful. Some of you are very plentiful. It's great. It's wonderful. There, there's a lot of harvest work to be done. But the laborers are few. Some of his disciples. There's a lot of work to be done. Up to this point, Jesus has done the ministry of harvesting. He's going to cut his disciples loose to join him in his ministry. And he's saying that there isn't enough people to get the work done. Maybe we forget this. We're comfortable where we live and in the world that we live in. You're like, well, what do you mean in the world that we live in? Well, think about it. You live in the buckle of the Bible belt. Um, Jess and I looked online today. We were at lunch together. She has to go back to school soon, and we're enjoying last day before she has to go back to work, and we were at lunch, and I said, do you, do you remember this guy? Is this guy somebody who you went to college with that I may have gone to college with? And she's like, yeah. He, he's pastoring a new church plant in town. Which is, whatever, we need to reach people in Springfield. So whatever means necessary, God has decreed to do that in our city, I'm all for. But here's the bottom line. There's about 400 evangelical churches within like a 30-mile radius of where we sit tonight. It's like hard to drive in town without passing like 15 churches. You really have to like work at it. You have to be like a stratego driver to like dodge churches in this town. Like if you're an atheist, that's why I wonder if you if you're an atheist, you come to Springfield. It's got to be like terrifying for your worldview because they're on every corner. They're everywhere. You're like I can't escape God. Not that He exists, but they're everywhere. These people really are committed to this guy. So we're comfortable with it. You have a conversation and share Jesus in this town. You talk to people and ask them where they go to church. A lot of people know church names. You got to press to get below the surface. It's not like other parts of the world where like they're known as uh, church plant pastor eaters. Like it's just a graveyard of church plants. In the northeast or the northwest. They're just a graveyard. Here in Springfield, really, like if you don't like what's going on at your church, you got plenty of options. You can go jo join a hundred different ones. And so sometimes I think even in our world, 
because we're so comfortable, go to a big church, a lot of things offered for us, real cozy and real nice, we forget that there are a lot of people who don't know Jesus. You've got to ask yourself, in a town of 150,000 people, why do over 40% of them mark themselves as non-religious when it comes to around a census time? 150,000 people, it feels like 150,000 churches, 400 plus evangelical churches, I know that can mean a lot of things. You got to begin to wonder, have we forgotten that the people in Springfield who don't know Jesus legitimately will die and spend eternity in hell? They're like, damn, you're good. I mean, Sunday night and tonight, like, give it a rest. We get it. People who don't hear Jesus, they spend eternity in hell. I think that's our problem. We get it, and we're unmoved by it. We're just unmoved by it. Some of you are going to be around 7,000 incoming freshmen at Missouri State this year. All over the state. They come from far and wide, from all over the country. Don't know Jesus. We're okay with that. I mean, there's plenty of places for them to go to church. There's plenty of on-campus things for them to do. We've lost our edge. You're like, what do you mean we've lost our edge? We need to be more edgy? No, this is about as edgy as I get. Watermelon shirt is about pushing the line on the edginess of where we're going to go as a college ministry. Just being transparent. We've lost the reality of the fact that the people around us need Jesus. And they're waiting for us to share him with them. We've lost the reality of this fact. It's not an opinion. Three million, or excuse me, three billion, one hundred and forty-three million, eight hundred and two thousand unreached people live in our world, and they are preparing to spend eternity separated from God. Forty-one percent of our world has never even heard the name of Jesus. And you're a Christ follower, and you're going, well, I'm going to college because I want to make money. And God has been wrestling with you more like you've been wrestling with him saying I've called you to go and all you want to do is stay let me read that to you again 3,143,802,000 unreached people live in our world never heard the name of Jesus I'm not talking about they've been to church they know the gospel they've rejected Three billion people have never even heard the name of Christ. We're comfortable to sit where we are and be unaffected by it. But here's the principle, though, and this is where it has to begin in our house and and, and in your house and in our lives and in your lives. I'm fully committed to this reality that people who don't share Jesus here won't share Jesus there. I'm fully committed to the reality that having a passion to reach people there should be preceded by having a passion to reach people here. So you can't say, well, David, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to Bible college. I'm enrolled online and I'm learning about Jesus and God's called me to reach these people and then never share Jesus here. The 
get literally in droves. This, this coming to Springfield, and I don't know why. I've said this before. I don't know why we have so many foreign exchange students in our universities here. And not just from, like, places that you would think, like, normally would come. Why do you think that God in his providence and in his kindness is allowing students from unreached, unengaged countries to come to Springfield, Missouri to go to school? A God like that is moving in a way to bring them here so that we can reach them here and send people there. But our heartbeat can't just be we get pumped up and jazzed about missions. Our heartbeat has to be that we do missions there and missions here. That we're just as committed to reaching people here as we are there. That you don't get excited to raise thousands of dollars to go on a mission trip but yet don't care about reaching the people around you in Christ. God has divinely placed them around you for a reason, to reach them. And you have the ability to do that. So we need to see the, the, the great need, but then here's the, the concluding part of all of this. Is it goes beyond just seeing people the way that Jesus does and then seeing the need and, and acting on it. Jesus kind of ends his instruction in a weird way to us, probably. But to him, it makes complete sense. Verse 38, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting here. Jesus doesn't order the disciples into a frantic mission, but rather instructs them to pray for more laborers to come help them for the harvest. Isn't that weird? I did. Maybe I'm the only one. Because the way this would work today, Jesus would say, guys, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Okay, Jesus, we've got it. Bring out the whiteboard. We're going to sketch this out. We're going to come up with a seven-point strategic plan for how we're going to reach the city. So we're just going to start here. I'm going to uncap my marker, and let's go. We're just going to need some ideas, and we're going to sketch this out. Jesus, it's okay. We've got it from here. We're going to take it. Appreciate you letting us know that the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. We're going to recruit some more workers. We're going to work on this. Um, uh, we've got this group of, of about 70 people here tonight. We're going to just start to strategize, and uh, we're good. And just begin to diagram it out on the board. We're getting ideas and different thoughts and different strategies. Everybody's really excited, and we go, okay, break, and everybody goes back home. Jesus wants us to pause here, and he says, Therefore, because the harvest is truly, truly is plentiful and the laborers are few, therefore, because of this, pray the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Grant Osborne notes that the solution to the problem is concerted prayer. When the going gets tough, the tough get on their knees. It's completely different than how the modern church approaches this problem. Our biggest roadblock 
to reaching people and sharing the gospel with people is an unprepared heart to reach them. We know the way to reach them. We know the gospel. But because we are not prayed up, our heart is not prepared to reach them. And we pray specifically. We pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This type of mentality presumes, number one, that the disciples are already engaged in Jesus' ministry. But Jesus is teaching them an, an important lesson. And that is that he is the Lord of the harvest. He's going to empower his laborers. He's going to send his laborers. And he's going to bring more laborers to himself. Our prayer submits ourselves under his lordship and his direction so that we can be sensitive to share the gospel at the appropriate time and appropriate places. And so what do you mean appropriate times, appropriate places? A heart that's prayed up is one that's sensitive in the moments when it would be insensitive. A heart that's prayed up is one that's tender when it would be hard. You say, what are you, what are you talking about? We live in a fast-paced, get-me-what's-mine culture. And when our hearts are tender to what God is telling us to do, then when he detours us, it's not a big deal because our day isn't ours, it's God's. That's why Jesus says to pray to the Lord of the harvest because he's going to prepare your heart and then the Holy Spirit's going to convict and say, just slow down here in this moment. And it's weird when we're prayed up and relying, or could we just to quote Ephesians 5, walking in the spirit. We don't fulfill the lust of our flesh, but we're also sensitive to the needs of people and their greatest need to meet Jesus Christ. Some of you go to schools where they don't give a rip if you're 10 minutes late or 50 minutes late. But you have ADD Global. And if you're not there five minutes before class starts, with your little notebook out and probably some crappy pens sitting out to the side, ready to take notes, you're like, my day is ruined. I missed the teacher's opening bad joke. What if he uses that for extra credit on the final? Some of you legitimately are sitting here going, you're addressing a lot of my concerns. Some of you are like, nerds. A heart that's tender knows that in the fast-paced world of the collegian life, that there may be an ordained conversation walking down the path towards me, but my heart isn't tender, so I'm not aware of it. that God would make us as a college ministry sensitive to, to the needs of the people around us. Not just their social needs, but their greatest needs. Oh, that our college ministry would have a burden to see people come to know Christ. Not because we want to 
get big and be the college ministry, but because they have a passionate desire to see people who don't know Jesus come to know him, grow in their relationship with him, and go on mission for him. One of the greatest encouragements I've ever heard from a pastor was that he was never much concerned about the breadth of his ministry. He figured that as long as he did and focused on the depth of growing people and pushing them to live on mission, that God would handle the expansion of his ministry. I heard that a year and a half into being a college pastor here, and it reformulated the way that I thought about our college ministry. So we're going to push you to go deep in your walk with Jesus. We've already told you we're making an intentional effort to disciple you and then open up other areas for you to be discipled deeper, to push you deeper, to push you to get out of the shallow end of the pool of Christianity and go enjoy and savor the deep majesty of who God is. But we're also going to push you to live on mission. So we've got to be committed to those two things first and foremost. I need to grow, but I also need to go. It's not enough for me just to show up on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. Go to discipleship groups, be involved in my small group, and then live the rest of your life like you're not even aware that you really are. Our heartbeat as a college ministry should be we all want to collectively grow together but we also want to see people who don't know jesus come to know him this leads me to ask you this question how are you doing at two types of prayer prayer one being who are the people in your life that don't know jesus that you're praying that they would come to know christ and making a concerted effort to actually share Christ with them. If you have no names that come to your mind when I ask you that question, can I just lovingly encourage you to make some new friends in the next couple weeks? I think there are about four to six people. They all work in a little coffee hut out on campus at dark sun. You could be a big Starbucks guy. But when I go to Dark Sun in the morning, there is like one, maybe one, two other cars there. And I've lovingly just begun to ask, where do you go to church? Why don't you come and hang out with us on a Wednesday night? I'm trying to press into those gospel conversations. Because you know what? Even for your college pastor, it's hard to get into those conversations sometimes. Just confess that. Just say it's hard. Which leads me to my second question. How are you doing at praying for the people in your small group that they would have boldness and confidence in sharing the next step with Jesus? And you're praying for that person as well, that they're sharing the next step with Jesus. You want to be unified as a group? You want to know what it's like to have a ministry that feels more like a family than it does a group of random people? It's when Christians get serious about seeing people in each other's lives 
come in or use it just as much as they are concerned about what they get when they show up at church on Sunday morning. Let's be those kinds of Christ followers. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.